world, and welcome to the first episode of Pretend You Read It. This is a podcast about classic literature through the eyes of a 21st century chick. My name is Sam, and I'm your host. Uh, first disclaimer, this is in no way meant to discourage you from actually reading books, but it's just more like a way if you need some info on a book, or you don't want to read it, or you're on a time crunch or whatever, uh, this way you can uh, pretend that you read it. Haha. Uh, my criteria for classics will encompass basically famous or well-known works from the 1920s and before. Um, so yeah, sorry if you're really into contemporary fiction or novels in general, like we're not talking about that here. But anyway, so this is episode one. Um, our first book is going to be Dracula by Bram Stoker. And here we go. So a uh, little bit first, Bram Stoker, short for Abraham, was an Irish author. He was born in Clontarf, Dublin in 1847. He got sick with some Victorian illness at like seven, but he made a full recovery and was super healthy and all that stuff, really into sports. He went on to study at Trinity College in Dublin, and after graduating, he became a theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail. Um, everybody really hated theater critics at the time, or it was just not like an esteemed job by any means, but his reviews were really high quality and everyone was really into him, so. Um, he became really well known for that. He was also kind of homies with Oscar Wilde and even ended up marrying a former fling, fling quote unquote, of Oscar Wilde's, um, whose name was Florence Balcombe. Um, and also, apparently, Abraham really liked theater because he and his lady love moved to London, where he became manager of the Lyceum Theater, which was owned by Henry Irving, who was a famous actor of the time. Um, and he worked that job for, like, the next 27 years. So, yeah, he really liked it. And with the theater, he traveled the world. Um, he was a really big fan of the U.S. He even met two presidents at the time, uh, President McKinley and Roosevelt. And uh, he was invited to the White House two times. Not many people can say that kind of thing. Uh, and during his time working in the theater, he began to write novels. Um, he met a Hungarian traveler during his own travels, whose name was Armin Vamberi. I totally butchered that. I'm so sorry for anyone who's Hungarian. Uh, who told him a bunch of spooky stories about the Carpathian Mountains, uh, and that clearly intrigued him because he spent the next seven years researching Eastern European folklore and then started Dracula. Uh, also, quick side note, there is a lot of speculation about if whether or not Bram was gay, but, you know, you can't know for sure. Um, so, yeah, that's enough little background on Mr. Stoker. So let us continue. So Dracula itself was published in 1897. Uh, it is an epistolary novel, which means that the format is in a series of letters or documents. Um, to try to give it sort of a factual, real-life kind of feeling. Uh, and also, fun fact, fun fact... Epistolary, the word epistolary comes from Latin via Greek epistole, uh, which means letter. So there you go. So the whole book is written as essentially a diary, but from various character points, um, viewpoints. So we start off with Jonathan Harker, who is a solicitor, aka lawyer, um, who was played terribly by Keanu Reeves, by the way, in the 1994 movie, which is also a masterpiece if you have not seen it, but anyway. He's on his way to Transylvania on behalf of another lawyer who has mysteriously gone MIA um, to finish some real estate contracts with a very mysterious character, Count Dracula. Uh, he arrives and the castle is super spoopy, uh, as is Dracula, who's described as a very thin, very white man in all black. 
Also, fun fact, Dracula's mannerisms and his behavior was based off of um, Bram Stoker's real life, like, boss, Henry Irving, the actor. Um, He soon realizes that he's been duped and is being held captive at the castle. So, of course, he starts freaking out. And Dracula makes him write all these letters, basically holding him hostage. Makes him write all these letters back home saying everything's all chill, like, don't worry, I'm here, I'm fine. Writes letters to his fiance, Mina, um, Mina Murray. And, uh, yeah, so Dracula, um, once he's got all of his papers in order, he dips the fuck out, um, and leaves Johnny Harker to fend for himself with the three, like, blood-sucking vampiresses that live in the castle. Um, so yeah, I mean, eventually Jonathan Harker does escape, just barely, but honestly, I feel like the whole book could have gone on completely fine without him, but that's just me. Anyway, so Dracula makes his way to England by ship, and he has to sleep in Earth from his homeland, so he's shipping hella boxes. FedEx would have had a field day with this guy. Um, But people start to go missing on the ship, and only the captain makes it out alive. And when the ship lands, the captain is actually um, tied to the, what is it, the steering wheel, whatever that's called on a ship, um, because he has to, somebody has to drive it, right? Or steer it, (laughs) because you don't drive boats. But anyway... Um, yeah, so he's the only one left alive, and it's a very mysterious captain's log that they find, you know, about all the mysterious happenings of people going missing on the, the ship. But uh, when the ship lands at Whitby in England, a mysterious black dog is seen leaving the ship. Hmm. So then we switch over to Mina Murray, who is Jonathan Harker's fiance. Uh, she's a pretty sharp character and is a keen diarist who writes in shorthand. Side note, I had no idea what shorthand was. I thought it was, like, cursive. But apparently it is actually a writing method where you essentially make a series of, like, dots and dashes and squigglies in order to, like, notate really quickly. Um, Basically, like, stenography prior to voice recording machines. Um, And then you transcribe it into actual words. It's really interesting. Google it. I encourage you to Google it because it looks crazy. But anyway, Mina is, like, super pro at this. So, yeah, she writes a lot. Um, She's, you know, very big on writing. Anyway, so she's staying with her friend Lucy, um, and Lucy is very rich and really just, we'll say, like, whimsical. She's she's basically your girlfriend that's, like, you always have to stop her from, like, running off with some stranger in the middle of the night. Um, so, yeah. Uh, she's kind of like your party girlfriend. So Lucy gets proposed to by, like, three different dudes who are all best friends, which is... I thought kind of like against bro code or whatever that's about, but I'm just saying. Anyway, um, so some would say that the trio bromance between these three guys, who are Dr. John Seward, uh, who is a um, psychiatrist kind of, um, Quincy Morris, who's like this American cowboy, and Arthur Holmwood, who's sort of a, I think he's a Lord Arthur Holmwood. So, um, yeah. Uh, Some would say that that's a reference to Stoker's own intense camaraderie with dudes, quote, quote. Um, But who's to say? But anyway, so while Mina's staying with her, Lucy starts to sleepwalk. And, um, you know, everybody kind of knows about it. And they're like, oh, poor Lucy, blah, blah, blah. Um, And one evening, Mina wakes up to not find Lucy in her bed. And so she finds her, like, sleepwalking out in the garden. And she also finds her fucking some, like, beast monster guy with red eyes out in the garden and she gets a little freaked out um before she knows it the beast is gone like she blinks and he's gone and she brings lucy inside and is kind of wigged out by what she's seen 
um, doesn't really know what to think about it, but um, very quickly starts to get some ideas because Lucy starts to act very strangely. So Lucy starts to just get like really pale and sad and Victorian and just, yeah, it's not good. So they call for Dr. Seward, um, who also like shoots up by the way, but just saying, um, and he works at the nearby asylum, like the mental asylum. And he's been really busy observing a patient who talks incessantly about his master and the master's coming and he's like obsessed with eating bugs and birds and other living little creatures. Um, but anyway, he rushes to Lucy's side and is really just sort of confuddled by what the problem could be because she's just pale and sad and not good. Um, and he calls his old professor, Dr. Van Helsing, um, who is Dutch, by the way. For the longest time, I had no idea. Anyway, I mean, Hugh Jackman wasn't Dutch in the movie, but oh well. So Van Helsing comes to the rescue, and as well as Arthur and Quincy, and immediately demands that they do a blood transfusion to save Lucy's life. Obviously, if you haven't put it together by now, um, she's been bitten by the vampire because they see the holes on her neck and they're like, what could this be? Uh, and she's sort of transitioning into her vampire thing. Um, and this slows things down a bit, the blood transfusion, but eventually, uh, you know, they try to like put garlic on her and stuff like that, but things kind of go awry and um, she eventually eats the maids and quote unquote dies. So Van Helsing tries to stop her you know, rising from the dead again, but it doesn't work out, and little children start to go missing sometime after she dies. So kids report seeing a white lady, um, like glowy white lady, wandering around at night, which is probably the, yeah, no, I, no, um, and the bros conspire with Van Helsing, even though they're initially kind of like, eh, this is crazy, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Um, to stop Lucy, and in the middle of the night, they catch her in the cemetery, and they stake her and chop her head off and stuff her mouth full of garlic. Um, so, sad times for Lucy, but everyone's now convinced, officially, like, okay, there's vampires and all that stuff. So, hmm. Um, then the dudes follow Van Helsing in his crusade to stop the vampire, who clearly sired Lucy, uh, knowing that they'll all be doomed unless they put an end to everything. So then, at this point, Jonathan Harker, who has, you know, w what we can assume has been, like, escaping from the castle and making his way back to England, um, he shows back up in England and saying he was rescued by some nuns in Eastern Europe and is forever changed. Uh, Mina notices this, but she marries him anyway, and they all join up um, with the homies to stop Dracula. And they're initially reluctant to involve Mina because she's just such a little lady. Uh, but she insists on joining and even says that she's fortunately not of a fainting disposition, which is probably the most Victorian thing I've ever heard. But honestly, if it weren't for Mina, this story would have never really moved forward at all because she's like kind of the, I want to say she's the Velma of the Scooby gang, but yeah. Um, so they all keep individual reports of their findings, right? They're tasked with like, okay, he came with Dracula's come with boxes. You know, we got to find where the boxes are because there's like 50 of them. And, you know, going through his real estate, you know, reports through Jonathan Harker and his contracts and stuff. They're like, why did he buy all these places? Where are they? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so they all keep individual reports of their findings on the hunt for these boxes. And these little hideouts full of gross mold from Transylvania Terror Town. 
and Mina reads all of the reports and discovers the location of each using her Scooby Gang powers. And so they go and find and destroy most of the boxes. It's all pretty Sherlock Holmes and pretty exciting, actually. This book, this part of the book is really like, oh my gosh, what are they going to find? Um, and so they just have one more house to break into. And when they do, it is a very, like, this is all very movie-esque, even though I don't think any of this portion was in the movies, actually. Um, but, you know, they kind of got to stake out the last spot and they got to, you know, make sure that the cops don't stop them. And it's just really interesting. Um, so when they do break into this house, though, finally, they encounter Dracula himself, who kind of scampers out of a window and escapes on horse and is like, I'll get you and your little dog, too, basically, a.k.a. Mina. So after this incident, Dracula attacks Mina a couple different times, or tries to, but eventually succeeds, and they do a little blood play, um, and by doing this, Dracula is able to control her and see through her eyes at will. I'm not sure still if, like, the intention of this was to convert her into a vampire or not, or if it was just to, like, do the mind control thing, but yeah, we never really find out. Um, and she becomes progressively weaker and just sort of, like, a little zombie-like. And Dracula tries to figure out the Scooby Gang's, you know, master plan. So, realizing that they're out to get him, he starts to GTFO back to Transylvania. Um, but Mina learns that she can also see through Dracula's eyes, like, especially when he's sleeping. So, or, like, doing his little power-down meditative yoga nap. Um, so by doing this, she learns his location, that he's on a boat, and they're like, oh crap, we gotta get, you know, head back to the castle, we can get back before him, blah blah blah. So the whole crew, gang, uh, packs up, and they get on a train, and Mina comes, and everybody's, you know, it's very exciting. And they're trying to make it back to Transylvania before Dracula gets there. So they split up, and Mina and Van Helsing go, um, by, like, carriage, and then the other dudes go on horseback. And they try to see, like, okay, who can get there first? And this all, like, this whole portion, this is, mind you, towards the end. There's, like, 50 pages left at this point, if that. And I'm sitting here reading it, like, okay, how is this all going to end in 50 pages? Like, what? Um, and so they all are, like, racing to the mountain. And Dracula's body is, like, in a carriage that's being, you know, rushed by gypsies. And it's sunset. And Mina and Van Helsing are there, like, in front of the castle, just sort of camped out waiting. And, you know, she starts acting really weird and just all, you know, having her little out-of-body experience and stuff and starts, you know, Van Helsing tries to put, like, a, I think it's like a wafer or something, like sacred wafer on her head. It burns her, leaves a scar. Like, it's just this, you know, very intense moment. And, um, and they're trying to get there by sunset, before sunset, since obviously he's vulnerable before then in the daylight. But, like, the dudes catch up with them. The Scooby gang all kind of meets right at the right moment and Quincy gets hurt and they like I think Jonathan Harker like chops his head off or something and that's it and honestly it is the most underwhelming ending ever and personally I thought there would at least be like a battle of some kind you know Quincy dies which is super sad because if you again if you've seen the 1994 Gary Oldman um, Francis Ford Coppola movie he is played by that one guy from Enough, you know, the abusive husband. I'm sorry, I think his name's like Billy Crudup or something. But anyway, he's like a really sympathetic character and you really like all these dudes. And yeah, that's so sad. But um, aside from that, like life goes on and it's super normal. Like the rest of it is like Jonathan Harker's journal. And he's like, well, 
that was that. It's so sad that Quincy died, but like, end of story. And it's just so anticlimactic. It's really depressing. So in that regard, I do think that the film adaption uh, does the ending better justice than the book, in my personal opinion. Um, there is also some speculation regarding the, like, homoerotic bromance between the three suitors, which is Quincy, Dr. Seward, and Arthur, uh, if that is reference to Bram's own suppressed sexuality, because he was a big fanboy of other celebs at the time, mostly, like, Walt Whitman, who he got to meet, who was really, like, he was beyond, over the moon about that, Henry Irving, who was his, um, the owner at the, the Lyceum Theater, and, um, and, you know, obviously he based a lot of Dracula's mannerisms of him, which again is not really an indication of like him being gay, it's just if they were really good friends. But, um, and also obviously was cool with Oscar Wilde, who was, you know, as everyone knows, was very, very gay. So, I mean, that's anyone's guess, but it does make things a little bit more interesting to contemplate that as you read it now. Um, especially because they, when they give Lucy the blood transfusion, they're all kind of like sharing that moment. And, um, you can kind of talk about basically like, the intimacy of vampirism or, you know, just the vampire in general, it's become this sort of erotic forbidden figure. That's why people love vampires so much because it really taps into our like, you know, sort of suppressed sexuality, right? Where it's just this, you know, biting someone's neck and like in their neck is just like, mm, like it's sexy, it's tasty. It's just, it's a very personal kind of erotic moment, especially like sharing their blood. Uh, I don't think you could get any more personal than that. So um, it's just a really interesting perspective to, to look at it through that lens. But that's just me. And I like the idea of thinking that Bram Stoker was like a you know, super duper, like, huge queen in the closet. Apparently his marriage was, like, completely sexless. And I think they had, like, one kid, and that was, that was it. Not uncommon, you know, for those times. Um, obviously there were no pride parades at the time, so it was not uh, an accepted way of life by any means. And also he was very big on, um, at the time, I think it was, like, 1890s or like early 1900s because he died in 1912 um where they were like locking up you know everyone who was gay and he was a super big proponent of that so some would say that you know some say that the people that are the most homophobic are generally gay themselves so yeah it's just uh, a lot of interesting interesting little facts to consider when reading this book um, but there's also, interestingly, quite a bit of talk about um, the power of women to evoke some sort of, like, tenderness or, like, the gentility and, like, virtue of women, um, which honestly I found just exhausting. Just, ugh. But also, again, like, it's just the times, which, I mean, maybe it was the, the times to a degree, but you could make the argument that not quite so. It's just a perspective. But, um, like, for example... In chapter 14, Van Helsing says to Mina, and he's reading her journal, like her notes about everything that she's seen. She's compiled Jonathan's journal and her journal and everything they've both seen. And he says, quote, Oh, Madam Mina, good women tell all their lives, and by day and by hour and by minute, such things that angels can read. You are noble too, for you trust, and trust cannot be where there is mean nature. End quote. And again, in chapter 17, Dr. Seward goes on to say, quote, I suppose there is something in a woman's nature that makes a man free to break down before her and express his feelings on the tender or emotional side without feeling it derogatory to his manhood. 
No one but a woman can help a man when he is in trouble of the heart and he had no one to comfort him. Personally, I found um, that I would say it is well worthy of the classic um, title. Um, mostly because, I mean, there were other, obviously this time was, this time period was ripe for gothic literature, gothic romance and gothic horror, um, and Dracula sort of become the sort of epitome of the gothic horror, um, especially for, you know, the late Victorian period. So, I mean, definitely worth reading, absolutely, if not for the ending, which was just like, what? So... Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that movies have taken it upon themselves. Filmmakers have uh, decided to, you know, zhuzh it up a bit on the ending there. But overall, the book is really well written. Um, I do like the epistolary format, as they do include, like, some little articles and stuff. It's just really interesting. I, I haven't read too many books that kind of have that format. So it uh, definitely keeps you on edge. Um, just like, what will happen next? But yeah, so overall, definitely do rate it if you're ever required to read it, um, say you like school or anything like that, or even if you just feel like it, highly recommend. And well, that concludes episode one of Pretend You Read It. Uh, so my name again is Sam. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if there's any particular requests you would like, I would be more than happy to delve into them and do an episode about that. But if you'd like to follow me on uh, SoundCloud, I am at soundcloud.com slash And also I'm on Twitter at Piri, P-Y-R-I, pod, Piri pod. Um, so pretend you read it podcast. And yeah, so subscribe and I will see you guys soon.